You can clap if the preacher says something good. You can say amen. You can make all sorts of noises. Who knows? But, um, but it's going to be good. So, hey, we're in week two of our series called Orthodoxology. And if you hear that, you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? What that tells me is you weren't here last week and you didn't watch the message online. That's okay. There's grace for you. But orthodoxology is a word I made up. I want to be up front and tell you that because you might be here. Like, what in the world are we talking about? Here's what I mean when I say orthodoxology. It comes from two words. Orthodox, which means a right belief, a right opinion, a correct view, and doxology, which means praise to God. And the thought behind this is that right beliefs glorify God. Now, th this is not hard to understand. We, we grasp this, even just practically speaking, that your view of God is going to impact your relationship with him. And if you don't have a right view of God, then it'll affect the quality of your worship. For example, if your view of God is that he's withholding from you, that he's just out to get you, that he's punitive, looking to punish you, then you're going to be restricted in how you come to him. You're not going to come willingly, freely. You're not going to give him worship. You're going to be reserved. How you view God determines how you worship. Now, on the other side of that, if your view of God is that he's good, you believe that he's for you, you believe that he knows you, that he's working on your behalf, that he cares for you, if you believe those things, you believe that he's a rewarder, then your relationship is going to look different. Your prayer life is going to look different. The way you worship him is going to be different. Our beliefs impact our relationship with God, and right beliefs bring praise to God. Now, that's practically just how we think about God, but it doesn't stop with our thoughts about God. It really extends to our thoughts about what God has said. In fact, Jesus said this. Jesus said this in the Great Commission, which is his last words in the book of Matthew, right before he ascended into heaven. Let me just quickly read it to you. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. In other words, it matters what you think about what I've said. You could say that the teaching them to obey part is the great omission of the great commission. Because we're, we're pretty good about introducing people to Jesus. We're pretty good about inviting people in to, to follow him. We baptize people. But I see a lot of people that are ignorant of what Jesus has commanded. I don't want you to be ignorant. So this is what we're going to talk about today. And in the passage we're going to look at, uh, I love this passage of Scripture. I've never preached on it before. Uh, this is like a classic Jesus story. I mean, you get to see the way he interacted with others. And in our passage, Jesus is being questioned. His authority is being questioned. It happens in Mark chapter 11. His characters being questioned. That happens at the beginning of Mark chapter 12, where we're going to pick up his theology is being questioned. And I'll just say as a side note, God can handle your questions. 
Like, you can come to God with honest questions. God, help me reconcile this. Help me understand this. Help me picture this. Explain this to me. God, this is my view on it. What's your view? God's not intimidated by your questions. He can handle your questions. Now, in this passage, these are not honest questions. The, the, the questions that they're asking, they're asking trying to trick him, trying to capture him, trying to pin him down. And just, again, I said God can handle your questions. The other section to that is you don't want to argue with God. That's not an argument you're going to win. You're going to argue with Jesus about his theology. You're going to argue with the word about the word. Well, that's what happens. It started the Pharisees. You've probably heard of them. That They questioned his authority because they wanted to be in authority. Then they partnered with the Herodians. They were another group. They're questioning his character. Now where we get, it's the Sadducees. Maybe you've heard of them before. They're not quite as well known. The Sadducees, everybody's taken their crack. Everybody's stepped up to the plate to see if Jesus can be pinned down. Can we get him? Can we find a gotcha moment? And everybody has struck out. Now the Sadducees, they step up to the plate. And this is where we're picking up the story in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. It says, the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a widow but no children, the brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, pause right there. What they are talking about is a section in Deuteronomy that Moses was given to the children of Israel right before they were about to go into the promised land. And if you know that story, God had told him to divide up the land. Different tribes were going to get different sections. The reason they gave this command is because it was important that the inheritance stayed within the tribe. So in this, you know, command, it was th this idea of a single person wasn't married, multiple wives, anything like that. But it was this idea, the reason it was important was that they would, the, the inheritance would stay within the tribe. So this is what they're referring to in Deuteronomy. Now, after they get that out of the way, they want to pose this theoretical, hypothetical, philosophical argument to try to capture Jesus. This is what they say. Now, we got this command. Now, let's say there were seven brothers. And the first one married a woman. And when he died, he left no children. The second married her. And he died without leaving any children. And the third did the same. And so on and so forth. None of the seven left any children. Finally, the woman died. I'm thinking like, Finally. I mean, that's a lot of men to go through. And uh, she's like a man-eater. But uh, so none of them left any children. The woman died. It's theoretical. Be at ease. At the resurrection, when they all rise up, whose wife is she going to be? All seven were married to her. Now, some of you didn't know that there were these theological arguments in Scripture. Like, you thought the Bible is just a book of instructions or maybe just a book of stories. But there were people really trying to sort some things out. And I love 
Jesus' response in this next verse. Because there's many people in the world today, this is how we're approaching beliefs. I know the Bible says this, but come along this journey in this intellectual argument with me, and I'm holding up this argument, I'm kind of disregarding Scripture. This argument is what I'm focused on. Look what Jesus says. Isn't this the reason you're wrong? In fact, why don't you just, you, I know you've always wanted to say this to the person sitting next to you. Just look at them in the eyes right now. Tell them, this is why you're wrong. Just tell them, this is why you're wrong. That's what I wanted to call this sermon today, is this is why you're wrong. I didn't think it would be very inviting. Really, the real title is this is why your theology sucks. So this is, this is why you're wrong. Look what he says. Because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power. There's two things you got to know. And by your question that you're asking me, it tells me you don't know the scriptures. It also tells me you don't know God's power. So he goes on to explain. He says, look, when people rise from the dead, they won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, they'll be like God's angels. As for the resurrection, something they didn't believe in, from the dead, haven't you read in the scroll of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. You are seriously mistaken. Now you can turn to the person you didn't talk to. Just tell them, you are seriously mistaken. Don't even think about it. You are mistaken. Yeah. Just helping marriages here at Velocity Church. Okay, so the Sadducees, they were the religious aristocracy of the time. Understand, during the time of Jesus, this is in history known as the Second Temple period, there were different factions of Judaism, different belief systems. You know the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most prominent, the largest, the most influential, but there were others. For example, there were the, you probably never heard of this one, the Essenes. Essenes are E-S-S-E-N-E-S. Essenes, they, they uh, were kind of an uh, enigmatic group. They would be like monks almost. They kind of lived in a, a cloister. They, they kind of had, had their own communal group. Oftentimes, it was outside of the general community. That's why many scholars think that John the Baptist was in a scene, right? He kind of came on. He wore camel hair, ate locusts. He's kind of this weird guy. That's, they believe that he came up from that, all right? So there's the Essenes, the Herodians. They were mentioned. There's the Zealots. Maybe you never heard the Zealots before. The Zealots were a group within Judaism that wanted to overthrow the government. That was kind of their political, uh, religious mantra. And uh, interestingly enough, Jesus had a group or had at least one of these zealots as part of his disciples. It was Simon the Zealot. It wasn't his last name. It wasn't like a cool rapper nickname. It was like that was because he was identified or associated somehow with this group. 
There's, there's others, the Samaritans, of course. Uh, but the one we're looking at today is the Sadducees. Not as prominent as the Pharisees, but they were absolutely the religious elite. They, they were the, the ones that uh, they had, they were friendly with the Roman government. They, they were uh, accepting and embracing of Greek culture, which would have been the dominant culture of the day. And while the Pharisees would have been seen and seen themselves as the arbiters of tradition, meaning they, they held to tradition, they had an oral tradition that they followed, the sad would have been seen as the ones holding to the most pure form of faith. Because the Sadducees were literalists. Literalists. What, what's that mean? Well, they really, for the most part, did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, and they also didn't believe in the resurrection. We see that in the text. And so a lot of the stuff that were maybe kind of mystic, that uh, traditional Judaism believe in, the, the Sadducees, they, they, they believed in the material, what they could see, what, the, what they could feel. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's significant because really all of Judaism, except for the Sadducees, believed in the resurrection. It was because it was in other books. You read about it in, a Psal- in the Psalms, read about it in Ezekiel. Well, the Sadducees, they just held to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. That's why you see them in their argument. They said, Moses told us because that's the scripture that they held to. And so they come to Jesus. They have scripture. And you can see the Greek influence, their love for Greek rationalism in their, their question even because they formulate this sophistry of intellectualism to try to capture Jesus and disprove a doctrine that they don't believe. So Jesus says to the Sadducees, this is why you're wrong. This is why you, you didn't start in the right place. And you don't use the right principles. And because you didn't start in the right place, because you don't use the right principles, you've got the wrong response. Sometimes Jesus would just flat out say, this is why you're wrong. I know we've got this idea Jesus is so loving and compassionate, and he is. Another thing is Jesus was not afraid to answer questions. Sometimes I meet Christians like, man, I can never make a statement on that. I just want to listen. Jesus was not afraid to answer questions when he was asked. So he says, this is why you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know God's power. You don't know God's word. You don't know God's ways. The scriptures have to be examined. God's power has to be experienced. And the starting point for every person to accurately divide scripture is you need to know Scripture properly and you have to know Jesus personally. If you put that, put that uh, slide on the screen for me. So we, this was last week, talking about orthodoxy. You said there's rings of orthodoxy. It starts with saving faith. There's essential beliefs. There's core Christian doctrine. There's community distinctives. And, of course, you have your personal preference, but there's things that are outside of that. That's not Christian. 
And so I said, if you came back this week, I was going to help you know how to slice this. You can bring out my prop for me, guys. How to interpret this. How to know what are the things that fall within core Christian doctrine and what are the things that are essential beliefs and, and how do you differentiate all of those different things. It starts, you got to know scriptures properly, got to know Jesus personally. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take the bulk of my time to talk about knowing scriptures properly. Then at the end, I'm going to talk about knowing Jesus personally. And what I want to speak to you about today is this. Here's the title of the message. How to know that you know. How to know that you know. So to introduce this, I'm going to talk to you about, you, you have to understand this word, and the, I'll say, this is a word I did not make up, okay? This is, because I'm giving you a lot of big words today. This is, orthodoxology is the only one that's fake, okay? The rest of these are real. <laughs> epistemology, okay? Can you say the word epistemology? Epistemology. It sounds like you're cussing, but you're not. Epistemology. Epist anybody ever heard of that word, epistemology? Some of you? Okay, all, all the psych majors. So epistemology means simply it's your way of knowing, okay? There's lots of different epistemologies, lots of different ways of knowing. I want to help you have a biblical, an orthodox, a strong, a rock-solid epistemology. And I got to, before I get into it, you have to understand, start with some first principles. Every epistemology has first principles. First principles are presuppositions that you make. Presupposition, something that's assumed. Presupposition is also something that you can't necessarily prove. Now, every epistemology starts with first principles. Every epistemology starts with presuppositions, whether it's empiricism, skepticism, rationalism, postmodernism, all of these epistemologies start with a presupposition. Christianity is no different. Now, just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not defensible. What do I mean by that? Okay, let's take an example of a first principle. Sin is the first principle of Christianity. You can't see sin. You can't see sins forgiven. Yet, all of us have experienced it. All of us can see the effects of it. And if you are a Christian, that means you have also received and experienced the forgiveness of it. So a first principle of Christianity is that sin exists and we have a need for the redemption, for the freedom from sin. That's a first principle. I can give you reasons. I can put it through rigorous scrutiny and expectation. But that doesn't mean I can prove it to you. In every epistemic... Atheism starts with the presupposition. God does not exist. And so that is the lens through which they interpret everything. Agnosticism, the presupposition, I can't be sure. And so the lens interprets everything. Well, Christianity has some first principles. Here's the first principle. We believe the Bible. As a Christian, we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible, and I talked about reasons to believe in the first series of the year, Bible Basics. You can go back and check it out. The reason we believe the Bible is because we believe Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. 
We believe God has authority. So because Scripture is God-breathed, that means that Scripture has authority. So if you just think through this in just more context, this is kind of how we set up the year. We did Bible basics, it's bibliology. We did leading second, recognizing that God is the authority. We talked about the table and we talked about the church. Kind of the first principles, we got, we got to start with this idea that we believe the Bible. If you don't start there, everything else I'm going to say isn't going to matter to you. Now, talking about these things and I'm throwing out some words, you might be thinking, okay, I don't know that this is for me. Like, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. I don't understand this stuff. This isn't for me. And if that's you, I'm going to help you so much today. I might use some big words, but I promise you, you can get this. Because what I've learned is that having good theology is really, it's a piece of cake. It's a piece of cake. Not, not really a, a piece of cake, it's, it's like cake. It's like cake. The reason I say it's like cake is because I don't know how to bake. Um, my wife, she's a baker. She's amazing. It's her spiritual gift. Me, I just appreciate somebody's gift. I, I'm not a baker. And so I know there's people that are like, hey, I'm glad you're good at theology. It's not my thing. But here's what I've learned from, from watching my wife is that, you know, you don't have to be a culinary expert to bake something. You just have to follow the recipe. And you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a theologian to, to understand this. You just got to follow the recipe. Now, I put this on because I watch a lot of Food Network <laughs> and uh, just living the dream right now. But here's what I want to help you understand. If you can follow the recipe, you will have a rock-solid epistemology. Okay? You'll have a rock-solid way of knowing. So, like I said, I'm not a baker, but I did get a recipe for cake off of ChatGPT. So, um, here's what I've learned is that, you know, every cake, unless you're using cake mix, which is kind of, I think everybody uses that, but it's kind of cheating. You can just um, use some flour, okay? Start with flour. And ideally, you know, I don't, I don't have a crew like the, like the studio kitchens. This is supposed to be measured out exactly. Because Gordon Ramsay just like knocking on the table. What's wrong? Get out of my kitchen. Uh, but so you got to start with flour, okay? And um, then you got to have some sugar. You got to have some sugar. Sugar kind of sets the parameters of the sweetness. Uh, one thing I've learned, you got to have an egg. You want to have an egg, right? So that's, uh, got to do that. So impressive. Um, like I said, I watch a lot of Food Network. Uh, so you you got to have some some kind of liquid, milk, usually cream, to, to bind things together. Uh, the right amount of salt. Salt just goes in everything, I think, when you're cooking. Um, and, uh, oh, I forgot the butter. We definitely got to get some butter in there because everything is better with butter. That, that is part of my theology. Um, and little baking powder kind of helps things rise a little bit. So, anyways, would you agree... I've got the right ingredients for cake. Well, I mean, yeah, we could put, you know, that's a little, that's the, that's the community's distinctives, right? <laughs> kind of what, you want a chocolate cake, you want a, you know, molasses, you want a little vanilla in there. But I've got the right ingredients here for a cake. Yeah. Right. right. 
So you follow the recipe, you'll end up with the right results. But on the other side, I've got some other stuff. And uh, one thing, I know my kids like SpaghettiOs. And so uh, just put that in there. Um, little sunflower seeds, it's edible, it's good. Some, my wife's from Iowa, so she's a big fan of corn. This is cream corn. I'm just putting in there stuff she likes. Um, some pasta shells. Italian is my favorite. And because I like Italian, i got a little bit of pesto that we'll put in there as well. Um, we have some taco seasoning and just a little bit cream of mushroom soup because everything is better cream of mushroom soup. Now, I'm going to mix this up here. And uh, how many of you know I've got cake in here? I've got the right ingredients for cake in here. But I've also added some other stuff in. Anybody like to try some of this? Let me try some. It's got raw egg. Let's get this. Let's take a big mouthful of that. Oh, that's good. Okay. What do you think? So, yeah. It's not, not very delicious. Okay. Here's what I want to illustrate for you. Taking a lot of time with this. If you want to have, we may need to pray over him. Can everybody stretch forth their hand right now? <laughs> Lord, heal him. All right. If you want to, hey, that's, you put the wrong stuff in there, you're going to get sick. And if you want to have a good theology, all you have to do is use the right ingredients. If you start using other stuff, I'll have something that I could put this in the oven. It might look like a cake. Not going to taste like a cake. It's not going to be very good. All this stuff is edible. It's not good together. So if you want to have good theology, there's a recipe for you to follow. Part of the recipe is using the right ingredients. I want to help you know what the right ingredients are. I'm going to go through this kind of, kind of quickly. Let me first say, say this, though, is that there is a way to interpret God's word, and there's a way not to interpret God's word. Understand this. Interpretations are not infinite. What do I mean? I mean that there is a specific meaning. Something's not open to thousands of meanings because sometimes what happens is people will say, well, I believe that God's word is inerrant, God's word is inerrant but our interpretations aren't. And while theoretically, yes, that's true, there are wrong interpretations, saying something like that means that, well, we can't really know what the right interpretation is, and so what sounds like humility actually ends up being finality. I can't know, so I'm just not going to know at all. And interpretation is not infinite. What do I mean by that? God gave us his word in the form of literature. And there are objective principles of interpretation that can be followed to rightly interpret it. So how do you know what scripture means? Well, scripture means what the Holy Spirit meant it to mean 
through what Paul meant to say, that's called authorial intent. So here would be an example. I'll come back to this. If I say I'm feeling blue, I have a very specific thing in my mind about what I mean. Now, you could be like, oh, well, he's feeling blue because he's wearing blue jeans, so he's feeling like the color. That's not what I meant. I have a very specific thing that I mean. So there's scripture means what the Holy Spirit meant it to mean through what the human writer meant. In other words, you don't interpret scripture by what it means to you. You interpret scripture by what it meant to them. See, God isn't trying to speak to you through what the Bible means to you. God will speak to you through what the Bible meant to them. So you need to understand what it meant to them so you can understand what it means for you. I'm not saying this to discourage you from reading the Bible. Because sometimes people be like, well, I, just, I don't understand this, Pastor. I don't like, it's a bunch of words and things. No, read the Bible. Even if you don't understand it, read the Bible. Because it is like a wax on, wax off practice where you are doing stuff and it's not making sense right now. But all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi's going to come because I'm quoting that great theological homily, the karate kid. And he's going to say, paint the fence and wax the car. And all of a sudden, you're going to be like, man, I know all this stuff because you've been reading the Bible. So read the Bible. So what are the ingredients? Well, you got to start with Scripture. you got to start with Scripture. And I'm just going to dump all this in here. This is going to be the start, okay? We'll, we'll just talk about flowers like the foundation, right? It provides the structure. you got to start with Scripture. Scripture is the starting point. You don't come up with a belief system just on what feels good to you. You, you don't interpret the world and have a way of knowing by what seems right or just logic. I'm not saying all of that, you just throw it all at the window, but what I am saying is you got to start in the right place. you got to start with Scripture. We believe the Bible. That's the first principle. The Bible has authority because God has authority. He breathed the Scriptures so the Scriptures are authoritative. We believe the Bible. I'll just give you a quick example, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's writing, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. So if you, you don't hold firmly to this, what you're believing is in vain. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, the first principle, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says, the reason you can stand on this is because it's according to the scriptures, not just my ideas, not just something I'm sharing. It's scriptural. Now, the problem with the Sadducees is that their foundation was not scripture. Now, they used scripture. Their foundation was their Greek rational argument. Here's a scripture, but here's our thought. Here's why. And what I'm trying to help you understand is that anybody can find a scripture. That's why you need other things. Anybody can find a scripture and just create some kind of crazy doctrine. So it's not enough just to appeal to scripture. Every heretic, and I know heretic 
sounds like a condemning word. All heretic means is somebody who is presenting, preaching, teaching a belief that is not biblical. That's all it means. Every heretic appealed to Scripture. The Sadducees appealed to Scripture. But their, their, their thesis was not scriptural. So you got to start with Scripture, but you can't stay there. You also need something called the creeds. What are creeds? Well, we'll call creeds the sugar. Pour some sugar on me. Uh, <laughs> creeds were created as a way to codify what they believe. You understand, like, early church was under a lot of attack, both internally and externally, doctrinally. That's why you read through all the epistles, almost everyone were the ones that Paul wrote. He's saying, hey, there's people coming in. Hey, there's, I hear people are believing this. I hear people are saying this. He's bringing correction. He's trying to set the boundaries. And you see these creeds as a way of codifying the essential beliefs. Creeds were the result of honest controversy. Like I said, you can come to God with honest questions. Early church, there was a lot of honest controversy. Hey, we believe this. We believe this. Well, let's go back to Scripture and let's settle on what we believe. And the Apostles' Creed, which like everybody holds to and adheres to, essential Christian doctrine, there's 12 articles in there, 12 arguments. That's the result of honest controversy. They fought for those things. Hey, we, we have to settle this. We have to establish this. This is what we believe. You say you're a Christian, great. Here's some things you got to believe with that because you say you believe in Jesus. Well, these are Jesus' words. These are things he said. If you don't believe this, you're not following Jesus. That's the creeds. Then there's the patristics, all right? There's the patristics. So we'll put, we'll put an egg in there for the patristics. So... You know, the, the patristics, they, they, they kind of help synthesize some of this stuff. Patristics, that's a, a weird word. Here's what I mean. It's early church fathers. That's what patristics, early church fathers. Who are early church fathers? Well, we, we looked at this in the first week of our, our, our one of our weeks of Bible basics. It's easy way to think about it. Jesus had 12 disciples. The disciples had disciples. And so these Disciples are called early church fathers. They were over churches. They were bishops and overseers. And they're, they're people uh, like Irenaeus, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Clement of Alexandria, Jerome, Augustine, Aquinas. All these people are called patristics, early church fathers who were disciples. We have their writings. We have their thoughts. We understood how they thought about Scripture, which they got from the apostles of how they thought about Scripture. You look at this stuff. Now, patristics are not, a, a, by themselves, are not enough. Who wants to eat a raw egg? Not, I mean, unless you're rocky, most of us don't do that. But the, the, the reason the creeds were formed is because patristics were divided on certain issues. So, hey, we've got to be established on this stuff. And so there were church councils and synods. Here's the here's next thing. Uh, you need exegesis exegesis. That'll be the milk because it kind of binds everything together. You need some exegesis. Now, what is exegesis? Exegesis, it's a big word to talk about going back to the text 
and it's how you interpret it. So it's looking at it in context. What was in the chapter before? What was in the chapter after? Why was the author writing this? What was happening in history at this time? What was it like in this particular, uh, in this, in this particular setting? Uh, you also look at what this word meant. How was it used in other places in Scripture? How was it used outside of Scripture? Is it like the Greek or Hebrew? Were there other writings we can look at to understand how this word was used? Now, I talked about if I say I'm feeling blue, all right, that has a very specific meaning. It's a commonly used, and I'm not, I'm happy, got the joy, joy down in my heart to stay. But if I say that, it's, it's a common phrase. We understand that. But blue has different meanings. I mean, blue can be a pigment. Blue can be a feeling. I, I learned recently blue can be a male butterfly. But if I, I'm, saying, I'm not saying I'm feeling like a male butterfly. That would be weird. But sometimes people will read a scripture and be like, oh, there's all these definitions, and that's what that means. No, you, you look at it in the context of, of what's being said, okay? So exegesis, go through the next ones quickly. Church history, uh, it helps, you know, we'll give that some, some rise here. Church history, how has, how has this historically been viewed? How has the church historically dealt with this issue? Is there a general consensus on this issue? You understand, church is 2,000 years old, and there's been arguments, and there's been thesis, and there's been uh, doctrine that's been taught, and you can look at the whole. Can you find outside things? Of course you can. But what's the whole? The, the whole of church history seems to be decided this way. Is there a general consensus? Here's another one. Reason. We'll, we'll season it with, with some common sense. Right? You can use your, your reason. God gave you a brain. You can use it. Reason is a gift from God. So you look at Scripture let me think about this rationally. Let me think about it philosophically. I'll give you an example. Trinity, the word Trinity, it's not in the Bible. Hope that doesn't rock your faith. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But, I mean, look at the words of Jesus. When I, when I just read the Great Commission, he said, baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the concept is in there just because the word's not in there. So we can reason, all right, that makes, that makes sense to me. Um, here's the last one, your local congregation. We talked about prioritizing the weekend. It matters because we don't interpret Scripture in isolation. We interpret it together. We, we, we get involved in groups and we have community and we're taught together. The, the church that God puts you in is important. Part of how, you know, for example, if you're a cessationist, cessationist believes that the gifts of the, the Spirit have, have ceased, probably want to be in a different church because we believe the gifts are in operation. That doesn't mean that, that, uh, that you necessarily have some kind of wrong view, but what it means is God uses the congregation, your local community that you're in, to 
feed you and speak to you and establish you. So all these things matter. So, so all of that, this is how you make a good cake. Now there's this other stuff here that if you add it in, you're going to get something you don't like. You're going to get something that's not helpful and that you don't want. Let me real quick run through some of these. Let me tell you this. You don't interpret Scripture. You, you don't get your, your view of God's Word and beliefs through intersectionality. What do I mean by that? Intersectionality is, is this view that truth can only be known through a nuance of social identities. And so if you take this to its extent, what people would say is, I, I don't really know that I can trust the way Scripture's been communicated to me because all my life I've only had a white male preacher proclaim God's word. Now, if that's your view, you are doing a disservice to Christian orthodoxy because Christianity, first of all, is not a white religion. Secondly, three of the early major church fathers are all North Africans. Tertullian, Augustine, Athanasius, the major first three church fathers, not Arab, they were North African. And so if you just think like, well, I've, I've got to hear from these voices to really have an, an authentic expression and know the truth, you are prioritizing German scholarship over Christian orthodoxy. That, that's the bottom line. So you don't interpret it through intersectionality. You don't interpret scripture through political activism. Now, absolutely, the Bible should inform our politics, 100%. Just like it should inform your relationships, just like it should inform your fiscal views, just like it should inform your social, the Bible should inform all that stuff. But you don't think, okay, well, this is my worldview. Now let me go to scripture and make sure that I can find the scriptures to interpret my worldview. We just go through like a bunch of them. Like you don't interpret the Bible through a philosophical lens of power and oppression. Where, where you're looking at, it, I've, I've got to know what these things are. Put it differently. You don't inter interpret the Bible through importing modern meaning on the text. So what's that look like? I'll give you one that I grew up with, right? I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And uh, in, in my church, people would like Acts 1.8, where you said, remain in Jerusalem until you receive power. Well, that word power, the Greek word is dunamis. And you know what? Dunamis, that's where you get the word dynamite from. And so God wants you to get this dynamite power. Okay, that's great. Preach is good, but here's the reality. Dynamite didn't exist back then. So you can't take a modern meaning and import it into the text. But we do this with justice. This is what justice means to me, and I found justice in the Bible, so I'm going to interpret my modern meaning into the text. We do this, uh, this is what trips a lot of people up. They do it with, with slavery. So people get, have problems with the Bible because they see slavery in there, and their interpretation is the American antebellum slavery, which, every, which is a stain on American history, and they say, well, I can't believe the Bible because I see that in there. First of all, the Bible never condones slavery. In fact, it was the opposite. In fact, it, it was Christians that were pushing forward this idea that we're image bearers 
in, that we are all equal in the eyes of God. And so understand that. But in ancient times, slavery was not like our modern interpretation of slavery. People would, one, sell themselves into slavery. People would buy their freedom. And I'm not saying that there was not atrocities. Of course there was. But I also understand 50% of the world's population at the time was a slave. So the Bible's speaking to that because there were people in that because it's an ancient document. Orthodoxy, it sticks with the doctrines that the church has continually confessed regardless of what the current generation is doing with Scripture. When you become a Christian, you inherit 2,000 years of Christian confession, which has been professed for generations. That's called orthodoxy, and it's not a mystery. Our generation, we have a problem with authority, and so what we say is, I can't trust authority because there's been abuses. I can't trust the church. I can't trust these things, so I'm going to be the sole interpreter. I am the seat of authority. And let me tell you something. That is contrary to Christian thought. That is not a weight that you can hold. You were not meant to be the seat of authority and interpretation. That's why you got to have all this stuff because otherwise what you do is you only interpret things through your experience. You only interpret things through what it means to me. And one of the most destructive thoughts of our generation is our most destructive practices is that we value our own thoughts too much. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. He says that his thoughts are way beyond ours. So the way we discover what scripture means is to do it with the rest of the Christian community as well as those who've been doing it for over 2,000 years. That's how we find the center. Can you put that ring up for me? Find the center. Find the center. There are centers and boundaries. The center is the gospel of how we've received it. The boundaries are what it means to be a Christian. The center is about who we are. The boundary is about who we're not. The, the cent, at the center, there is God's grace. On the boundaries, they uphold God's truth. When we're talking about this, these three rings, that's what we mean when we say Christian orthodoxy. Somebody asked me last week, so, so just explain to me, what do you mean when you say orthodox? Really, orthodox just means to be biblically faithful. Biblically faithful. There are faithful ways to interpret scripture, and there are unfaithful ways. I want to be biblically faithful. I want to faithfully interpret it. You think about it, faithfulness is not a one-time event. Faithfulness is observed over a span of time, consistency, it's a pattern of behavior. And so it relies heavily on past generations and their witness, not because they're old, but because they're faithful, because it's consistent. So I told you, you got to know scriptures properly, but you also got to know Jesus personally. That's how I want to end. Talked a lot about scripture, and there's a lot of throughout you. Just write those things down, follow the recipe. You don't have to know it all, but can you run it through this? Take 
the whole into consideration of Scripture properly. There's Jesus 